Go ahead and grab your Bibles right now and open up to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're in the middle of a series that's called The Front Lines of Faith in 1 Timothy. The reason it's called Front Lines of Faith is because we know that there are some things in the church that we are going to have to fight for, that we are going to have to defend. So it's called the front lines of faith. The Bible alerts us to those areas that are in need of our careful watch. Let me begin by telling you what happened to me earlier this week. On Monday, I had a dentist appointment. Maybe like me, you know that going to the dentist always leads to something. My teeth are terrible. So as soon as I walk in, I'm sure my dentist books his next trip to Hawaii because he knows that I'm going to have to pay out, you know. But, but needless to say, I went because two weeks ago, my tooth was aching and it's sensitive to cold, so I knew I had to go. And I went in, he took the x-ray and he said, you know what, you've got a cavity. I don't know how deep it goes into the tooth, so I'm just going to start drilling with the little drill and we'll see how deep I get. But if I hit the root and the infection got in there, then we're going to have to do a root canal. Now, I've had five root canals. Uno, dos, tres, cuatro, cinco. How many of you had? Who's had five or more root canals? Go ahead and raise your hand up. We need a club, some sort of a support group, right? Who's had like six or more? Anyone have six or more? Seven? Who's had the most root canals in the room? Eight? We need to like get you some sort of a dental, you know, like we'll give you some sort of benevolence offering for the next time you go. <laughs> Anyway, he's looking into my mouth. He starts drilling with the small drill. And he goes a little bit, then he cleans it up. He goes a little bit more, he goes a little bit more. And finally he says, oh, I just broke through to the root. It's going to have to be another root canal. So root canal number six is coming my way tomorrow. Do you know why they have to do root canals? See, he explained it to me. Here's a picture of a tooth. The way it works is the tooth gets infected on the top. The infection spreads into the root. The, The roots go down into the gums. If you don't get it out, it creates an infection way at the bottom of the tooth. That's an abscess. That could break. That could become fatal if the infection gets to your brain. So so he puts the small drill down, and he reaches for the big drill. In the middle picture shows the big drill that goes all the way down into the root canal of the tooth. Once he cleans that out, then he can fill it back up on the third picture so that there's no infection anymore and you can save the tooth. This next picture shows the root canal drill. This is the big drill. That's the big drill. Five, going on six. I floss. Don't judge. It's genetic. Well, if you brush your teeth every once in a while. No. Now, here's what's going on in the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus, which the book of 1 Timothy was written to them, had a problem, an aching sore spot. And God, throughout 1 Timothy, keeps pushing on this spot. All right? He's trying to show them there's a problem. The problem is this. The problem is the whole church had a problem with authority. Leaders had problems using authority properly. The congregation had problems responding to authority properly. 1 Timothy is like the long drill, and God keeps going deeper into the heart to root out this infection, which is a problem with authority. He has to do it because this infection can kill the church. 
This infection of having a problem using authority or responding to authority can kill the church. So what we see here is, as we made our way through the book of 1 Timothy, is we've seen this issue come up time and time again. Chapter 1 talks about teachers who swerved and left the truth, and they were using their authority to teach false things in the church, abusing their authority. We also hear in chapter 1 how Paul had to put two men under church discipline. He names them. Hey, my name got in the Bible today. Really? How? Well, I'm under church discipline. But I got in the Bible. Named by name. This guy and this guy. Problems. In chapter 2, it begins with a call for the whole church to pray for their government and so honor those who are in authority in the world around them. In the church, men were warned against quarreling. Women were told to remain teachable and humble and in this way to honor church leaders. Chapter 3 laid out strict qualifications for elders and deacons so that we know how they're supposed to use their authority. Chapter 5 talked about how to correct older men, older women, and how to challenge younger women who were causing trouble in the church to knock it off. And then last week, the title of the sermon was, Elders Gone Wild! What is the church supposed to do when an elder gets sideways, right? So, hey, if you came here today and you're like, I hope he's going to talk about what we do if the leaders are the problem, you got to go back to last week. Online, listen to the sermon. It will be greatly edifying. This week, though, this week our focus goes uh, to inside the home. This week, the Bible talks about authority problems in the household, specifically between slaves and masters. Uh, These slaves who had now been given new freedom in Christ, who had been set free and liberated spiritually, who could come to church and worship as brothers, were going home and having a hard time now respecting the authority of their masters. And the Bible has to say, hey, 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 you're free in Christ, right? But you're also a slave to Christ, which means you're not casting off all of your obligations. You're now fulfilling them in a more biblical way than ever. The Bible's going to talk about how Slaves under authority can honor uh, the Lord. Maybe you came to church this morning hoping that this would be the topic of the day. Maybe you were hoping, I hope Pastor Ryan preaches on slavery and submission. That's what I really need to hear more of. (laughs) But when you go verse by verse through a Bible book, God gets to decide what comes up, and I trust he's going to use this in everyone's heart in some way. Check out chapter 6, verse 1, where it says this. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And I love how this ends. It says, teach and urge these things. That's great. So say these things about slavery and submission, and then because he knows... The Apostle Paul knows Timothy is going to be reluctant to bring these things up. He says, teach it! Teach it! And i got to be honest, there's a big part of me that's reluctant. Like, can I skip this passage? Do I have to preach on slavery and submission in the church? Anybody want to trade jobs just for a week? Come on up. Tell everyone what you think the Bible says about slavery and submission. So the Bible here says to me, teach it! But it says, teach it and urge it. See, it anticipates that there's going to be a resistance on your part to hear it. So I have to teach it and I have to urge you, hey, 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 hear it, hear it. I'm urging you to hear it, okay? So here we go, back to verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Write this down. What does the Bible say about slavery? 
What does the Bible say about slavery? Took some time this week to just go through that question. The picture of a yoke here is obviously, it depicts a binding obligation, an agreement or a relationship. And um, this yoke of slavery, the word slavery, is instantly offensive. Am I right? It's instantly offensive when you hear the word slavery. Because when we think slavery, we think of its American form, which did damage to an entire race based on skin color. It's a blot on our history as a nation. And there's racial tension that still exists today because this sin was not rooted out of our nation. Listen, the Bible is against that form of slavery. We need to understand that going into it. Write this down. What does the Bible say about slavery? Slavery was punished in criminal forms. In the Old Testament, slavery was punished in criminal forms. In the New Testament, it was condemned in criminal forms. There was always, in Old and New Testaments, forms of slavery that were condemned. You might ask, well, what do you mean forms? How come the whole thing wasn't condemned? Why didn't God just come right down and say, no slavery, no form ever? All right, well, you'll see in its biblical form it did serve some good purposes. But for now, just understand that there was always a criminal form that was completely, uh, that was subject to strict penalties. Um, How would we define unbiblical slavery? We'll put this on the screen. Unbiblical slavery is a binding relationship or agreement, legal or illegal, characterized by injustice in how servants are acquired, managed, or released. So again, it's binding, which means there is this servitude relationship or an agreement. It could be legal or illegal, meaning the nation that, that it happened under could say, it's oh, it's okay, or the nation can say it's not okay, doesn't matter. If it's characterized by injustice in how servants are acquired, managed, or released, it's criminal. It's criminal. The Bible imposed strict laws on acquiring, managing, and releasing slaves. Let's talk about acquiring slaves. Uh, Capturing someone and making them a slave was criminal in the Old Testament and condemned in the New. Uh, Check out Exodus 21.16. We'll put it on the screen. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Capital crime. Notice it's not just the person who went out and stole somebody. If you buy that person and somebody knocks on your door, hey, 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 where'd you, where'd you get that servant? Oh, bought him from him who's just stole him. You die and the other person dies. Punishable by death. Therefore, slavery in its American form was punishable by death in the Bible. And what's even more reprehensible is the fact that many in the church tried to justify it. It's led to so many problems even in the church. Let's be clear, it was criminal. Also in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 1.10 says, it mentions enslavers, people who do this. They just go out and they capture and they put people in slavery. Enslavers, they're called lawless and ungodly. Lawless and ungodly. Doesn't matter what the Roman Empire thinks about it. Lawless and ungodly. So there's a criminal form of slavery. Sadly today, you think our world has come a long way. Slavery in its criminal form is still a big problem. The New York Times wrote an article last year that said, global slavery has become a profitable growth industry, generating an estimated $150 billion a year. Billion dollars a year in illicit profits. Modern day slaves include construction workers in the Persian Gulf, Girls from Nepal trafficked into prostitution. Children from India working in brick kilns. The UN estimates 21 million people are trapped in this sort of forced slavery. Acquiring slaves in this form was punishable by death. 
Managing slaves harshly or violently was condemned in the New and the Old Testament. So, for example, in Exodus 21, 26 to 27, if somebody had a slave and they just got, you know, riled up or they just, bam, they just hit their slave and like knocked a tooth out. Slave goes free that day. You're not allowed to lay a hand on the person. You're not allowed to be violent. The way that slaves were treated was uh, governed by law. Also, the way slaves were released was governed by law. So, for example, there's a situation where um, a father who perhaps in a poor family, you know, in Israel, could enter his, his daughter into this relationship where she works. She's totally under, you know, the care of this other family and she becomes a servant. There's an agreement going into it that this would lead to a certain, you know, privileges and provisions or whatever, and maybe even to marriage to one of the sons. Well, in the Old Testament, the Bible says, if that agreement is broken, the girl goes free. All right? And women who were marginalized in the Old Testament still had protections when it came to this sort, sort of servitude. So acquiring slaves, managing slaves, releasing slaves was completely governed uh, by strict laws. In the New and the Old Testament, most slaves expected to one day earn or save their way to freedom. Uh, in fact, if you had a, a, a Jewish slave in the Old Testament, you could only keep him for six years as he was perhaps working a debt off. Then he had to go free and his debt was canceled. All right, in the New Testament, there was a pathway to hope, a pathway to freedom. Sometimes voluntary or involuntary, you were serving another. But uh, freedom was always the ideal, the biblical ideal. All right, so slavery was punished in criminal forms. And it's good that people today and the church is rising up and saying, we need to end it in our day. It's unacceptable that people are treated this way in any form. All right, let's talk about a slavery, a form of slavery in the Bible that was allowed and regulated. Write this down. Slavery was allowed in regulated forms, in the Old Testament in particular. It was allowed in regulated forms. Um, what would be a definition of this form? All right, biblical slavery was this, a legally binding relationship or agreement where one person works under the complete direction of another. This servitude could be voluntary, meaning I enter myself into it, or it could be involuntary, meaning I was forced to do it by a court or by an individual. In its biblical form, slavery in this form promoted justice, security, and provision for the destitute. Okay, in its biblical form, it promoted justice, security, and provision for the destitute. Um, okay, so why? Why would people enter into this form? Why would people enter others into this form? There are three basic reasons why people were put in this situation in the Old Testament. The most common reason was debt. The most common reason was debt, all right? So you owed someone a lot of money and you either voluntarily said, all right, here's how I'm going to pay you off and make this right, or perhaps the court were to say, hey, you're, you're either going to jail and you're going to rot or you're going to go pay it off and you need to go work, right? So debt was the most common reason people were put into slavery. Their court system was different back then. Their sense of their uh, system of justice was different back then. Okay, they didn't have like extended jail time. They didn't have bankruptcy attorneys. They, you know, it was just a different form. Justice in the Old Testament was a lot more right here, right now. We're making it right. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Everyone goes home feeling like justice has been served. Well, if you owed a big debt, here's how justice could have been served. You're going to go work for him until you pay it off. Okay, or maybe even voluntarily you say, that's what I'm going to do. This form promotes justice because it's leading to the payment of a financial debt that is owed. It's not unfair. It's a righteous way that a person could get out of debt. Uh, so debt is the first reason. Poverty is the second. Poverty is the second. So let's say that there's a family who couldn't afford to live. 
The family as a whole or members of the family could make a binding agreement with another family to work, um, and this would guarantee that family security, income, and basic provision. This is basically a, 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 an ancient form of social welfare. Okay? They didn't have government programs. They didn't have, like, go stand in line and fill out your paperwork. We can't feed our family. What do we do? One way that you could, that you could get solid income, you could get regular basic provision, is you could enter into this binding agreement. This, uh, in the Old Testament, sometimes even happened with family members, where a family member would come and say, all right, all right, I'm going to work for you a couple of years, and you're just going to take care of us. Let's put it all in writing. Let's get it all settled. Okay? So it could be voluntary, um, but poverty was just one more reason that people would enter into this. Um, the third is conquest, debt, poverty, and conquest. Conquest, so Israel goes out, wins a war, and now there's these people, and they have no government, and many of the men just died. Uh, so the barbaric, brutal way that they could then finish that other nation off is by killing everyone, man, woman, and child. Or the humanitarian, you know, the benevolent option would be to bring the survivors back to put them to work. And so there were rules governing that. There were also rules that allowed for an Israelite man to take a woman from a different nation that was conquered and to bring her in so that she could become his wife. And when you see the rules that were applied to this, like you've got to give her time to grieve. Okay, then you have to make sure that this is a binding agreement. You can't change your mind and say, ah, I changed my mind. She's just going to be a common slave now. Can't do it. You've got to let her go. The fact that there was such like legislation over how to even treat a conquered people shows that, this was, uh, that justice was trying to be built in to this whole setup. But conquest was one more reason that slavery existed in the Old Testament. There were famous slaves in the Bible because of conquest or just because of different nations. For example, Joseph was a famous slave who went into Egypt. Daniel was a famous slave who was taken off into captivity. Nehemiah was a famous slave and servant of the king who came back to help rebuild the temple, proving that God could use people who were in this setup to further his purposes. All right, in the New Testament, the Roman Empire built slavery into its whole society. You could contract yourself voluntarily to go out and to get regular work by becoming this form of servant in the Roman Empire. In fact, teachers, doctors, accountants, and farmers um, would enter into this form of you know, service to other people. Most of these slaves served in homes, some in religious positions, some in the government. Slaves were in the lower class of society. So now that you've got background on what the Bible says about slavery, you've got to ask yourself, how does this verse apply to me? I mean, let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their masters as worthy of all honor? Like, there's no slaves in the room. Uh, like, are we just supposed to learn this history lesson? Well, you have to understand, when you read the Bible, we find out what the verse meant to its original audience. Then we ask ourselves, what are the enduring, timeless principles that, are, that apply to all people? What do I learn about relating to my fellow you know, humans? What do I learn about relating to my holy God? And there's so much we can learn because this theme of authority keeps coming up in the book. So write this down. Here's what we take away from this. Number two, give authority figures in your life all honor. All honor. This is really the only point, and then we just have reasons and ways that we're going to apply this to our lives. But this is a two-verse, two-point sermon. Number two is, give authority figures in your life all honor. It says here, let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. This means respect is given to the master from the slave in action and in attitude. Action, what I do. Attitude, the attitude in which I do it. 
And here we see that if a slave in a household who's coming to church, finding out they're heaven-bound, a child of God, is told to go back and to show respect in attitude and action, how much more are we supposed to show this same honor in attitude and action toward the authority figures in our lives? Now, this principle can be applied in the home. This principle can be applied in the church and in the world. And we learn from this how we can interact with the authority figures around us. Let's be honest, though. We would prefer a world where we just get to be in charge. Am I right? If you're honest, you would prefer to be your own boss, to not have other people telling you what to do, how to do it. We just all have an inbuilt, a built-in problem with authority, right? And, and if, you're not, if you're not agreeing with me, you know you're lying in church, and that's a sin. So just, you know it's true. Uh, we would like to be in charge, which is why in elementary school, when we got the assignment, what would you do if you were president? We all wrote some things down, candy for everyone, right? And uh, I'm going to be able to tell my parents what to do. Like, we love that thought. I get to be president, and no one's going to tell me what to do. Um, I don't know if you watched Jimmy Fallon on the late night show, but uh, he recently asked his viewers to send in uh, tweets on Twitter, and he said, uh, fill, in, fill in the blank. Here's the sentence. If I were in charge, here's what I would change. If I were in charge, just in charge, here's what I would change. So he got a few people, a bunch of them sending him tweets, but somebody wrote this. If I were in charge, I'd make all envelopes taste like Jolly Ranchers when you lick them. Somebody else wrote, if I were in charge, I'd call double stuff Oreos regular Oreos, and I'd call regular Oreos diet Oreos. I'd feel better about eating them. Somebody else wrote, if I were in charge, I'd ban the phrase, all kids are winners, because frankly, some kids are losers. It's harsh. It's harsh. Be honest. You'd like it if people stopped telling you what to do in the home, at work, at church, right? But God is the one who made authority. God made authority, and he made it to be good. Here's a chart that shows how authority works. Um, it starts in the home. When you're born, your parents have authority from God to raise you. Okay? And the Bible says, children, submit to your parents in all things. This pleases the Lord. And all the parents said, you're a little slow on that one. Come on, parents. In the home, God established authority. Kids have to obey their parents. The reason he did this, children, is so that your parents could make your lives miserable. So they could strip you of all happiness in life, and they can just take all of your fun away. Okay? No, the reason they did this is because when you were two years old, standing on the table with a steak knife, asking for somebody to let you do what you want, you needed someone to tell you what to do. All right, parents know better than you. The older you get, the more freedom you get. Eventually, you'll move outside of the home. But in the home, children obey your parents. Also, the Bible says wives are supposed to let their husbands provide the primary spiritual leadership in the home. That doesn't mean the husband gets to always watch what he wants on TV. It means he is lovingly charged with steering his family in God's direction. And the wife is supposed to support his leadership in that. All right, but what happens if that breaks down? What if a husband is poorly leading? What if a wife is being harmed? Well, hey, you get to appeal to the authority of the church. And you say, hey, I want to talk to the elders. I've got some things that I need you to know. The, my home is kind of breaking apart here. You have an appeal. And leaders in the church, elders in the church, have authority over each one of us. We covered this a couple weeks ago, but a fact in the Bible is elders are supposed to rule 
well. The word rule means they have authority over us. I'm under the authority of the elders, and so are you. Okay? The elders have authority, and it's from God. We didn't vote it for them. They are given it from God to rule and to lead well. So you can appeal to that authority and say, hey, I need a leader in my church to help me or protect me or challenge me or whatever. What if that doesn't work? Or what if the leaders in the church go bad? Well, you can appeal to the government, right? Hey, we've got a leader in our church who's stealing money. What are we supposed to do? Just listen to him? No, that's why there are laws. You can appeal to the government if there's something wrong going on in your church. And what's great about this is God is the ultimate authority over all authority. God is the ultimate authority over all authority. Hey, if you, when you and I struggle and wrestle with authority, we ultimately have to understand God has promised, God has promised to see all injustice and to make it right in his time. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You're never out from under God's jurisdiction. Doesn't matter where you live, where you work, who's in your home. All of them are under God's jurisdiction, and He is closely watching everyone who has authority in your life. When you embrace this truth that God sees all injustice and promises to punish it, then you don't have to get your case file out and become your own prosecuting attorney and make sure He doesn't get away with anything, right? Because God's promised, vengeance is mine, I will repay, relax, I've got this. It's really our... Um, obligation and responsibility to submit to authority in our life and to trust that God will hold the authority figures accountable. 1 Peter 2, 17-19 says this, Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, that's your church. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Realize that their emperor told everybody he was a god. Honor him? Our president tomorrow could make an announcement. Special announcement, everyone. I just realized I'm God. Thank you. And we'd still have to honor him? Yes. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Notice that we have to be subject to the authorities in our life even when they're unfair or wrong. Okay? We have to be subject to them. We have to be respectful to them. Are there exceptions when they're trying to force me into sin or something criminal is happening? Yeah, we've covered that in other sermons. That's not the topic of the day. We're just talking about when they're unfair or harsh, you know, or not kind about how they're leading or you disagree with them. You know what? We still have to submit to that. It says here that's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. See, what we do is we give ourselves permission to not fall underneath authority. How do we do that? Well, usually what we do is we try and say either the person or what they're trying to get me to do is so monstrous that I'm giving myself freedom to not have to follow that person or listen to that leader, right? So uh, earlier this week, my son Jared, who's in second grade, had an assignment in class. He had to draw in art class one of his fellow students. So he's sitting across from the second grade girl and taking his time, and they gave him little grid lines to help. And then at the end, he looked, and here's what he drew. This is his little classmate that he drew. He's not going to art school. All right, all right. Now, here's what we do. Well, he came home and he's like, Dad, I tried to draw whatever it is, Sophia, but instead I drew a swamp monster. (laughs) All right. 
Here's what we do. If we're honest, we start talking about our boss or whatever, and, and oh, you wouldn't believe how he talks to me or what he said. Or, and in the end, you're describing him like he's this swamp monster, right? Like that. That's what I work for. And then you say it that way so that other people are like, oh, you poor thing. And then, then you're like, yeah. So based on that, I now don't have to obey the Bible. See, you're trying to give yourself permission to not obey the Lord when the Bible calls you to honor those in authority over you. All right? Teenagers, you're going to feel it days like that's your parent. Dad's a man. What got into him? You still have to obey. You still have to obey the Lord. Um, we struggle with this. We try and give ourselves permission to not fall in line under the authority in place. But even when the authority isn't kind of doing it graciously, God still expects us to fold under that. And to give them honor. It says, slaves, regard your masters as worthy of all honor. Then it gives us reasons why. Why? Why would I, why would I even put up with this at my job? Why would I even let someone talk to me that way? Why would I even let my husband, he's not even doing what he's supposed to be doing. Why? 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 says here, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Write this down. Do it so God looks great. Do it so God looks great. The way you respond to good authority and to bad authority is going to make God look great or it's going to make him look reviled, reviled by the way you treat authority. I, I read or I saw pictures this last week about a mom, a mom of six. She let her kids do her makeup for her. One kid a day. Would you let your kid do your makeup for you, women? Would you? Would you? All of them. So here's what her 11-year-old son made her look like when he did her makeup one day. And then she even let her 20-year-old son do her makeup. And so here's what he did. He made her go out like that, looking like a raccoon. She's just like, really? Really? All right, now hold on. Keep that up there. Here's my point. Here's my point. Let your son try and make you look great. Then you'll know what it's like to be God. God lets his children make him look great. God lets each one of his children make him look great. How? By how they respond to authority. He doesn't give them lipstick, right? He gives them a relationship where they have to either use authority wisely or respond to it biblically. And based on that, he's saying either, wow, you, you just made me look great, or you just made me look hideous by how you responded to authority. God lets his children make him look great through the way we relate to authority. God's reputation is on the line. If, if this slave here in the church was... To go home and be like, ah, forget you. I'm found in Christ and saved and heaven bound. And you can take this job. He's making God look terrible. Awful. Right? Elsewhere in other books, there's even mention to the masters. And, you know, the Bible says, hey, hey, masters, treat your slaves with all dignity and respect because you have a master in heaven who's watching your every move. There's no favoritism. There's no partiality. Your injustice will be judged. Here, for whatever reason, the problem was more on the, per, on the slave side. He was having a problem showing respect and honor to his master because of his newfound freedom in Christ. Hey, show him worthy. He's worthy of all honor. This is true in your home. Children, you're supposed to show your parents 
all honor. Honor your father and mother, right? Do you know that the Bible says that this is the commandment that has a promise attached to it, that you may live long and that you may also have God's blessing on you, all right? And so God wants you to show honor to your parents in the home. Wives, God wants you to honor your husband. And in the church, God wants you to honor the leaders. Why? Do it so God looks great. When you're at home, the way you talk to your parents, God's reputation is on the line. When you're at work, when your boss isn't around, what you say about him, God's reputation is on the line. And you can't be at war with your parents and at peace with your God because God put them in your life to lead you. That's the lie. You know what? I could be fighting with these people in the church and then me and God are just going to go have some private time. Uh, No, no. You need to go and make things right with those people in the church. There can't be that conflict. Why? So God looks great. It also says here that the, leaving Master Mark, it says, um, so that the teaching may not be reviled. The teaching. So write this down. Do it so that our faith looks great. Do it so our faith, do it so God looks great. Do it so our faith looks great. Meaning the teaching about Christ or about God or about the church or about salvation. Now the gospel is at stake with the way I respond to authority in the world, in the home, and in the church. Now the gospel's at stake, right? So imagine a high school student just going on and on and on, cursing their parents out, right? And then, you want to come to youth group tonight with me? What? What? You were just like ripping your parents to shreds, and then you're like, you want to come to church with me tonight? I go to church. I'm a Christian. You're polluting the truth. Your faith is looking terrible because of your relationship to authority. And it's going to be reviled. What we see here is that others will define our faith by our relationships. Okay, that's a big deal. Uh, Churches that get all sideways in conflict, doesn't matter if they're getting the truth right, doesn't matter if I'm preaching the gospel, if we can't get along and people walk in and they're like, oh, you're like a bunch of porcupines. They're not hearing what I'm saying. They're seeing what we're doing, right? And if there's these huge problems and factions and fights, our faith is going to look horrible. So we have to do it so our faith looks great. We have to understand that whatever we do, wherever we do it, in the home, the church, or the world, we're doing it to the Lord. Colossians 3, 23-24 says this, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Well, you mean I can work at McDonald's and be serving Jesus? Yeah. You mean, I had some weird jobs. I told you I delivered teeth in college, right? I was tooth delivery, not like the tooth fairy. I drove a car. They didn't give me wings. I just drove the car and I delivered the teeth to the dentist and then they put them in the mouth. Tooth delivery. I could do that job to the glory of Christ? Yeah. Yeah. Any job you have, any boss you're under, any family you've been born into, any church you find yourself at, you can honor the Lord and work heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Do it so the faith looks great. God sees all obedience and it says here that he will reward you. You're serving him. It's worth it because you're serving him. This is another lie we believe that keeps us from respecting authority figures. Well, they're not going to care anyway. I could do the right thing and no one will know and no one will see it and there's no reason for me to do better than I'm doing. False. God will reward you. 
God will reward you. See, we believe the lie. It's not going to make any difference. They don't deserve God's watching. I'm doing it for him. We believe the lie. Oh, they're just going to feel like they're getting away with it and nothing's going to change that. God will judge that. When you embrace the truth deep in your heart that God will reward obedience and he will punish disobedience, you're free to just do what God has called you to do. And you can be gracious about it. You don't have to go to war. Do it so God looks great. Do it so our faith looks great. Our church looks great. Hey, the next time you find yourself struggling with authority, think about the Lord Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate. Do you remember that conversation that he had there? It went something like this. Pilate said, don't you know that I can set you free? And Jesus said, don't you know you'd have no authority if it weren't given to you from heaven? Did Jesus put him in his place? Yes, but what else did Jesus do? He acknowledged that Pilate had authority from heaven. Okay? Jesus submitted himself to Pilate's authority, reminded him where it came from, that he's going to be held accountable. Jesus also said, those who handed me over to you are guilty of a greater sin. So he indicted the religious leaders who abused their authority too. And then what did he do? He submitted. Like a lamb to the slaughter, he was silent. And the Bible says that's an example to you and me. Listen, the next time that you subject yourself to poor authority in the home, in the church, in the world, just keep telling yourself, I'm acting like Jesus. I'm acting like my Lord. The next time you're tempted to rise up and to tell it like, to be like, I'm going to put an end to the end. I'm not going to do it. The next time that heart gets in you, listen, remind yourself that that attitude would have kept Christ off the cross. If he rose up and said, I'm done with this and went back to heaven, you wouldn't be going to heaven. His submission to authority is right at the heart of our own salvation. It's our message. Christ was willing to submit himself to the will of the Father, to the earthly authority, even to the religious leaders. That's what led to our salvation. So when we fail to place ourselves under authority, even imperfect authority, We're failing to act like Christ. And we're failing to display the way that salvation came to earth. Do it so our faith looks great. Do it so God looks great. Here's the next one. The last one. Give special honor to believers who are in authority over you. So all that was just one verse. And there's just one verse left. Verse 2. It says, those who have believing masters. So, all right. So this, some of the slaves had non-believing masters. Maybe they were more harsh or unjust or unfair or whatever. Hey, 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 show them honor and make sure that they see the love of Christ and the submission of Christ in you. Maybe they'll get saved. Hey, those of you who have believing masters, oh, wow, my, my, my boss, my master's a Christian. My husband's a Christian. My father's a Christian. Now, now the person who's in authority over me is a Christian. What does it say? It says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. See, there's this strange reasoning in the heart of Christians that because a leader in the church is telling me that I have to do something, I could be like, who do you think you are? You're just a Christian like me. You can't tell me what... As if because they're a Christian, they have less influence or less ability to have authority. Do you know that word right there that says... Uh, must not be disrespectful. 
That word means to think little of. So Christians, when they have a fellow Christian in authority over them in the home or the church of the world, must not think little of that person who's trying to exercise authority on the basis of common spiritual ground. In fact, I'm supposed to say, man, because my brother in Christ here is telling me the way I'm supposed to do, you know what, I'm going to give him more respect than I'd give to just any old unbeliever who's telling me what to do. So what's with these people who at work in the home with non-believers are like, oh, yes, fine, I'll do whatever you say. And then in the church, they're like, over my dead body. Like, like they're fighting in the church, but they're fine in the world, and it's not right. We're supposed to actually save our greatest honor for the leaders in the church who are trying to lead. This is throughout First Timothy. Those who are elders, those who are leaders in the church are supposed to be worthy of even double honor, right? So God's people are supposed to honor those who are believing leaders, and yet often it doesn't happen. Why? Because they're brothers, It says they must serve all the better since those who benefit, those who I'm now helping and following, you know, are benefiting by my good service, are believers and they're beloved. They're my spiritual family. So I'm going to give special honor to believers who are in authority over me. How does this work? Well, if you've got a Christian boss, you're going to do a better job, not a worse job of doing your job because we're both believers. How did this all work together in the early church? I've got a a New Testament example and then a modern-day example of how this form of respect and deference and submission kind of all played out. There's a whole book of the Bible called Philemon. Philemon was written to a man who Paul had led to Christ. What happened is this. Paul led Philemon to Christ, went off on his journeys. Then Paul ran into this slave in jail, led the slave named Onesimus to faith in Christ too. Just so happened to find out that Onesimus had been Philemon's slave and he ran away. So Paul's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You lived where? Who was your master? And then Paul's like, uh-oh. You ran away from a guy I led to Christ. You were his slave. I just led you to Christ. How am I going to reconcile these two brothers? What a mess, right? Would you want to be in on that phone call? What a mess. So Paul writes this letter to Philemon. It's now the book of Philemon. And let me read a little bit of it to you. Paul says, I appeal to you, Philemon, for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. For this perhaps is why he was parted to you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. Wow. I notice here the love that Paul had for this socially worthless person in the eyes of the empire. Why? Because the slave is now a brother in Christ. I also see the Apostle Paul showing respect to the obligation. Or the debt. Hey, I'm sending him back to you. I want you to be the one to figure out how this should work out. If there's anything owed because of his absence, I'll pay it out of my own pocket. He's showing respect for that obligation. He's treating this slave like his own son. And he's asking Philemon to treat him like a brother. Yet, he convinced Onesimus, you got to go back. you got to go back. And he's like, all right, all right, all right, I'll go back. What What a portrait of how in the church, brothers are getting together to resolve conflict. Right? I don't know who you're trying to get to get along right now, but you didn't have anything like this. 
runaway slave returning to his master. None of us has tried to put you know, that one back together. Here Paul's trying to do it. This is a portrait of how Christ reconciled us to God and the beauty of what it looks like when brothers strive for unity in the church, whatever it takes. Now, a modern-day example of what this attitude of deference and submission and mutual respect looks like. I was part of a church in 2001, um, and uh, I was with a church that came out of Melrose Park. We were launching a new church in Lombard. Two churches coming together, you can imagine, you know, the clash of culture and history. You know, there were about 35 people working real hard to, to try and have our first service as a church. Uh, it was 2001, and there were some older folks, and it was a Baptist church, and they were used to voting on everything. Maybe you were in a church once where you voted on carpet, what copier we're going to buy, church discipline you got to vote. They were used to voting for everything. So some of these folks were surprised when they showed up to church one Sunday, and like the, you know, the organ was thrown in the dumpster, and the carpet was all new, and they didn't get to vote on it, and they were freaking out. Well, the pastor wanted to replace the pews with chairs. You should gasp. The pastor wanted to replace the pews with chairs. And uh, it's going to cost some money, so it requires an actual church meeting with a vote. So there were all these people now, two churches becoming one in one room. First business meeting ever. Pastor gets up and says, I'd like to put chairs in, then we can have a wana in our church, and we could stack them up and have banquets up here, and uh, it's going to cost some money, but you know, we're going we're to vote on it. And this dear old lady, she's in her 70s, her name was Velma, stood up. You know, she's from the South, so she had a, an adorable accent. She's like, well, and she's got influence. She's like, I want everyone to know in this room that I don't agree with this. I don't think it's right. I won't vote for it. But if you all do, I will sit in these chairs and I will come because I love this church. And the vote, the vote was uh, 33 to 2. So Velma and one other voted against it. 33 people voted for the chairs. And guess what? Velma came, and we never heard her complain about the chairs again. She had her say, and then she submitted to what everyone else decided. And a few weeks, maybe a few months after this, she started inviting this neighbor of hers to church. His name was Richard. Richard, Richard was 84 years old. And he started coming to church, and he got saved, and he got baptized in the early years of this new church. 84-year-old Richard got saved. And the church rejoiced. If Velma had stormed off, who knows what would have happened to Richard. But God blessed Velma. He blessed her willingness to follow the leaders of the church and to follow the opinion of others. And because of it, salvation came to one of her neighbors. That's an amazing portrait of how we're supposed to interact with each other here in this church. We're supposed to be, we're supposed to defer to others. We're supposed to, you know, lead well. We're supposed to listen well. And then through that unity, people are going to get saved. Hey, in the response to this message, I, I don't know who God's laying on your heart, but I think it would be most appropriate for us to just take some time to pray right now. But I want you to pray for those who are in authority over you in the home, in the church, in the world, go through the list and begin right now to take some time to pray for those people who have authority in your life. Let's all close our eyes, let's bow our heads, and let's pray. You can pray that God 
would bless them, strengthen them, purify them, correct them. Pray. Pray right now. Pray for those in your home who have authority, whether they're using it wisely or not. Pray that God would fill them with His Spirit. Pray that they would get saved. Go through the list. Pray for those who are the hardest to relate to. Pray for the areas of brokenness that need to be fixed. Now pray for your own heart. Pray that God gives you the strength and faith. Pray that He gives you the love. Pray that He gives you the ability to follow, to listen, to defer, to be patient. Pray that He challenges you to go beyond just the bare minimum, to actually give honor to those who are leading. Pray that He gives you the ability to do it when you're hurt, when you're disappointed, when you're worn out. Lord Jesus, we remember what you said to your disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. We trust that you hold the power over everyone who leads in our lives. We believe you will hold them accountable. You are keeping close track of how we're being treated. Based on that confidence, give us the ability to respond well. Fill us with humble hearts. Remind us what it must have been like for you to stand before an earthly ruler with tens of thousands of angels at your disposal to submit, to allow the Father's will to pass. Thank you for the glorious triumph that came through your obedience. Jesus, bless us and strengthen us. Bless those who are leading in our lives, in our church, in our home, and in our world. We ask that you would bring about peace. We ask that you would bring about justice and fairness. And we ask that you would start in our own hearts as we give honor to those who deserve it. We pray that you would enable us to do this, Lord, this week. Bless our church with unity and peace and joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.